0: to another episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinar a non-resident fellow with the Foundation, and today I'm bringing you a special conversation I hosted for subscribers to my Substack on January 12th. I'm releasing a recording of that conversation publicly on the FMAP podcast to bring more attention to the controversy around the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and its recent decision to rescind a fellowship to the former head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth based on his supposedly anti-Israel bias at Human Rights Watch. I'm joined by Ken and tenured Kennedy School professor, Catherine Sikink, to talk about everything that has happened and why it's important. Without further ado, the recording picks up as I'm introducing our guests and diving right into what happened. Please enjoy. Uh, I'm really, really thrilled to be joined by Ken Roth, a long time. A uh, 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 leader of Human Rights Watch and Catherine Sicking, who is a Ryan Professor of Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School, and I think um, it's really significant that uh, that she's willing to that she's been willing to join us, given that she is at the institution that whose actions are under under scrutiny. So, I wanted to kind of start with the the actual events um, that uh, that um, that actually transpired with Ken's fellowship at the Kennedy School, and then kind of from there broaden out a little bit to some of the broader issues that are raised by it. So um, uh, uh, I think Ken is going to put in the chat for those who have not read it, the the piece in The Nation that broke this story and then Ken's subsequent column in The Guardian about it. But Ken, do you want to, I'm sure you've done this now so many times that you're blue in the face, but you want to just give us a bit of a recap of what actually happened. And then I'll go to, to Catherine about how she got involved in it.
1: Um, sure. Well, first, Peter, thank you very, very much for hosting us. Um, I, I think the basic facts are, are pretty well known at this stage, but I, I announced um, in April my plan to step down as director of Human Rights Watch come the end of August. And very quickly after that, um, the two you know, leaders of the Carr the Center for Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School Contacted me and said, you know, would I be interested in joining them as a senior fellow for the course of this current academic year? Um, and we, you know, had a bit of back and forth about what exactly that would entail. Um, but my plan this year, I'm kind of in the middle of it, is to write a book. Um, I'm trying to answer the basic question, you know, how does a, a small group of people move governments around the world? And, you know, it, it made sense for me to be at a place like the Carr Center. I, I have been affiliated with the center. Going back, you know, more than a decade, I actually did a, a big debate that it sponsored in 2004 with Michael Ignatieff, who was there at the time, Samantha Power, who was there at the time as a moderator. We were debating, you know, was Bush's invasion of Iraq a humanitarian intervention or not? Michael said, yes. I said, no, 300 people in the audience. It was fun, you know? Um, so I, I go back with the Car Center. And so it made sense. And we worked out the terms and essentially at the, and early June, I agreed in principle to take the fellowship. And the only remaining step was the approval of the dean, which everybody assumed would be a complete formality. You know, it's it, it didn't even occur to us that there would be a problem. Um, and indeed, I, I was so sure that I was gonna be there starting in September that I contacted the dean and said, shouldn't we, you know, chat just to know each other before I show up then? And we had a very nice video chat in July. Half an hour was completely ordinary, you know, uneventful. But toward the end, he asked this weird question, you know, do I have any enemies? And you know, it's weird because I mean I have tons of enemies. you know I, that's what I do. Um, you can't be the Director of Human Rights Watch and not generate enemies. So I said, you know, yes, indeed, I have enemies. And I, I mentioned the Chinese and the Russian governments because they have both personally sanctioned me. I mentioned the Rwandan and the Saudi governments because they have a particular animosity toward me. But I had an inkling what he was driving at, so I also mentioned the Israeli government saying that you know they don't seem to like me either. Um, and that turned out to be the kiss of death because two weeks later, you know, I received this very sheepish call from my friends at the car center saying that the Dean had vetoed it because of vetoed my fellowship because of my criticisms of Israel. And and here I really should defer to Catherine because she was the the key intermediary in this and was the one who had the conversation directly with um, Dean Douglas Elmendorf. But the
0: folks at the Car Center, when they told you why you had why it had been denied, they specifically mentioned uh, the the Israel question.
1: You know, it was never. I mean, it was clearly Israel. You know, it was I, my and Human Rights Watch's supposed anti-Israel bias. Now, I mean, this was you know interesting because. The Kennedy School, you know, they have a a standing fellowship for 10 Israeli government officials every year. You know, they've had, um, you know, former prime ministers, a former retired general. Uh, All that's fine. But, you know, these are hardly unbiased people when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And on the flip side, they have occasionally had a Palestinian. Um, and, And as I thought about this, I realized that while the term biased is cast about, what actually I think was the problem was Human Rights Watch's lack of bias. Mm. It was actually our impartiality that bothered them. Because if you know a Palestinian official criticizes Israel, he can be sloughed off as a partisan, and you know it's not it's not going to sting that much. But when Human Rights Watch criticizes Israel, precisely because we do our best to objectively apply the same standards to Israel as to everybody else. There is a sting attached to our criticism, so I think you know what, this facile use of the term bias actually masquerades what's really going on, which is our lack of bias that is the problem, and that is I think why they just didn't want me to have the Harvard implement tour.
0: So, so Catherine, tell us about how you got in. When did you first hear about all this, and how, and and what, and about the about the engagement that you ended up having with Dean Elmendor? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so first I should say that I am not part of the leadership of the Car Center. Uh, and so I'm not the one of the two people that reached out to Ken and, and, and asked him, but I found out shortly afterwards and I thought it was a fantastic idea. Uh, I was very excited actually about having Ken come to the Kennedy School, I thought it'd be great. Like I said, I wanted to read his book manuscript that I knew he was writing. I thought it'd be great for our students. For example, I already had images of asking you to come and speak in the classroom. And just be told, I didn't have a clue initially that it would be controversial, okay? Because we have had, uh, the Car Center has had previously top leaders of major human rights organizations as residence fellows, Salil so Shetty, who was the head of Amnesty International at the time had been a, a, a fellow for a year, and had had a very successful, I think, fellowship uh, was very sought after uh, by uh, by student groups, by fa- uh, and by faculty, and by people throughout Harvard, really. And I imagined something similar was would be happening uh, with uh, with UCAN as well. And so I was I heard I thought it was great. I was looking forward to it. And then uh, then we got a message. I got a message saying the dean wanted to meet with uh, the leadership of the Carr Center and wanted me to be there too. Okay, because I'm a faculty member, one of the main tenured faculty members associated with the Carr Center. Um, And at first I said, like, what? What? What do they want to talk? I literally didn't know what they wanted to talk about. And at that point, someone said to me, it could be Israel. And I went like, really? Like, why? And so my my initial reaction was just kind of disbelief. But at that at that point, I decided, well, I better get on the Web and see what. What Human Rights Watch has mm-hmm. done on Israel, you know, uh, and at that point I uh, actually admit I first read the report on um, on apartheid, Israel and apartheid, and so a little bell started going through my head, and I decided to walk into the meeting at a minimum with a with a copy of the of the apartheid convention with me that included its definition of what is apartheid right? And I, so I read the definition, I thought about the ways in which uh, what parts of that definition could be seen as fitting um, practice some of the practices in Israel today vis-a-vis Palestinians. Um, and so sure enough, we went into the meeting, uh, a small meeting, just a small meeting with the car center people, me, the dean and another staff person. And we were told that the fellowship would not be approved. And it was because uh, they believed that Human Rights Watch and therefore Ken Roth had an anti Israel bias. And even though I was a little prepared, I was still kind of deeply shocked by it because it was just so, it was just one of those things so obviously false. And later, I wish I said at the time, but later I realized it was not just misinformation, but I had, you know, I'm not accustomed to having. People at the Kennedy School actively spreading uh, misinformation, or what, you know, what late, I would later call disinformation, about a group like uh, Human Rights Watch, and so. so the, I'm sorry, good. Ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying. So we we argued back. I mean, we, you know, we sort of gave all the reasons why this was wrong, why it would be a deeply flawed decision to deny this. Um, about the,
0: nobody else except for Dean Elmendorf who was taking this position in the, in the meeting.
2: No, because it was, he just had one other staff person there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, and so, but I knew it was not, it had been, a, a. it hadn't been a only a personal decision. Of course, he has a team working with him. Right. And, and really all he would tell us that he had spoken to many people
0: about but he it. He wouldn't tell you who he talked to.
2: Yeah, I didn't. Um, we, were, I felt I was so busy trying to explain why he must have misunderstood something and did he really know about the nature of the kind of work that major human rights organizations did. And of course they picked fights with governments and of course governments hated them. And that was their job. And, uh, you know, Human Rights Watch has been doing this. I mean, I first read Human Rights Watch first report back when it was just... Helsinki Watch and America's Watch before it even was Human Rights Watch, I was reading their reports. And so I felt like I have a lifetime of scholarship where I've been using the reports of Human Rights Watch and and always with a lot of confidence in the quality of their reporting,
0: Hmm.
2: right? And the objectivity of their reporting. And during this
0: conversation, did he seem to have, I mean, did he offer evidence for for his claim that Human Rights Watch has an anti-Israel bias? no so he wasn't really engaging with the substance of the of the of the critiques that you were you all were making
2: just that 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 he had he'd talked to many people at one point the twitter account was mentioned ken's twitter account and again we sort of said this no there's the, I'm, let me i don't know for sure ken this is what we said we said of course Ken is a full-time person working with him on his on his Twitter account and they plan out what to say and what they say about their work on Israel is just one of many, many things I follow. I follow Human Rights Watch on Twitter because that's one of the ways I get informed about uh, the most recent reports and the most recent statements that, uh, that you've done, right? Um, and, and so, no, but other than that, we didn't get evidence.
1: Yeah, Catherine, maybe you could in the um, in the Chronicle on higher education today. I forget who they're quoting, but they are. Um, I guess yeah, they're quoting you. That what he, what Elmendorf had said is that people in the university who mattered to him were rejecting.
2: Actually, they weren't quoting me on that one. I mean, he taught He told me he okay. spoke to many people, to many people inside and outside the university. But he didn't say people who mattered to him. No, to me, I don't remember that.
1: It must have been somebody else then. Okay. Yeah. Um, Because I was—I mean, it was interesting. Because I mean, frankly, until I saw that article today, um, you know, I had always assumed that he didn't have deep personal feelings on Israel; that this was, you know, more you know concern from others. And that's Mm kind of confirmed in the article today. But then the other thing I wasn't sure about is, did he actually consult with people, or did he just assume what they would think? And and it's clear that he did actually consult with people, you know. And so the open question is, you—who are those people? And are those some of the you know the donors or are the other people you know we just don't know
2: yeah yeah and so when i so at that point he said he would think more about it so he would he would take our uh our opinions into account and would think more about it and get back to us and um so at that point i went back to my office i wrote a memo <laughs> using data to show why it was completely false that human say to say that human rights wall Watch had an anti-Israel bias. I sent that memo to the dean. I felt like I've done my good academic work. Now we'll get a rational decision. And then now, I you
0: say something about, I, I actually thought that the way you constructed the memo was really I mean, I haven't read the memo, but just the description of it was fascinating and really, really valuable. It seemed struck me as really, really valuable. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the about the metrics you used to explain why you didn't think that Human Rights Watch was treating Israel through a different lens than other
2: countries? OK, just if people are willing to bear with me because it's kind of a nerdy thing I'm going to I'm going to talk about. Oh, it's nerd out. OK, <laughs> <laughs> so social scientists like me do sometimes do quantitative research on human rights where they want to have a good measure of countries, human rights practices. And so one, uh, pr- uh, scholars at Purdue University many years ago produced something and they call it the political terror scale, which is a really Bad name, but it's it's a, a one to five uh, code scale, a one to five scale of core human rights violations, torture, summary execution, political imprisonment and disappearance for all the countries of the world. So how are they going to do that? Well, all they can do is is read annual reports of of, uh, uh, of the very few organizations who report every year on that initially. They used the State Department has something called country reports on human rights practices. Initially, they coded State Department's and reports, and they coded Amnesty International. And at a certain point, they added the Human Rights Watch annual. What's it called? I can't exactly. The human World, report. World report. World report. They added the it came human out today. Watch actually, yes. Right. World report. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, people said, "Well, we have to be concerned about bias." And in particular, they were worried about bias in the US State Department. And so they coded, the, the, the coders read those reports individually, State Department, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and they converted the, the every country, the part on every country, they converted it to a number, one to five, five being the worst, one being the best. Okay. And so the reason why then it became a useful tool for me was literally I could compare the coding that that scholars had given reading the reports of those three different uh, organizations to see if how similar or different they were, okay? And the short story is they all coded for the years I, the the recent years I looked at, they all coded Israel at a three or four on a five point scale. So they were all actually deeply critical of human rights practices in Israel and, um, there were not, there were some differences, but there was no, but Human Rights Watch was not an outlier at all. If anything, Human Rights Watch sat right in the middle between the State Department and Amnesty International. And I think the, you know, I think the one place there was bias was the Trump administration had bias, pro-Israel bias. And it's possible that the Trump administration's pro-Israel bias, they used that to uh, tweak their human rights report. And so those it came out three every year, not a four uh, during the Trump administration. So if there was some bias, I think it was within the State Department. So anyway, that let me produce a little table that had what each organization, what the the score based on coding each organization's reports for a very number of a number of years to show that Human Rights Watch was not an outlier.
0: Wow. And what's amazing it sounds like what you're suggesting is that maybe with the exception of the Trump administration, if Ken Roth and Human Rights Watch are two, have too much anti-Israel bias to get a fellowship at the State Department, then perhaps US anyone that US government employees who worked at the State Department should also be considered to have too much of an anti-Israel bias because there's not actually that much of a discrepancy between what the State Department has said about this the human rights watch. And and so I mean this is it seems to me like a kind of model of like what a social scientist would do faced with this such situation. And then you sent this to to Dean Elmendorf and how did he respond?
2: He's he said he'd read it carefully, and he wasn't going to change his position. So, And then I, and then I sent him a, a link to your piece, uh, Peter, on, uh, on this sort of new way of defining anti-Semitism. Anyone who criticizes the Israeli government is seen as an anti-Semite.
0: Well, shockingly, I didn't convince him either. Um, yeah. Not surprisingly, given that I haven't convinced many of my own relatives, Um, but um, um, but so I guess we kind of are in the realm, obviously, of speculation until enterprising journalists kind of find out more information. But I'm interested in for both for you, Catherine Person, then Ken. Given the way the Kennedy School works, um, I guess my question is like beyond just saying at a broad level, like donors had influence. Why do you think this would have happened? Why do you think Dean Elmendorf, assuming this wasn't deep conviction by him, given that he's not expressed any convictions on this issue in the past, do you why do you think he would have been worried about having uh, uh, Ken Roth at um at, at the Kennedy School?
2: Okay. So i I'm gonna I'm gonna answer my answer and then I'll let you yeah. yeah, turn then it we'll over to Ken for this. So, okay. So I it is of course there's a hypothesis. There's a strong hypothesis that this is a result of donor pressure. Okay. And the reason I call it a hypothesis is because in my business, I try not to I try not to speak about things as facts if I don't have evidence. If I don't have, you know, if I haven't gathered specific evidence about about that. And I do not have any personal evidence that I have gathered of a donor that twisted. Uh, the dean's arm on this. Okay. So I think there's a strong hypothesis. I spent a lot of time with my students trying to convince them to distinguish between what we know as facts and what we have as hypotheses. And so I try myself not to, I try myself not to jump to conclusions until I have more evidence. Okay. But I think there's a strong hypothesis. I, when I resigned, because then I, then I resigned. I was, I was chair of a, department in the Kennedy school which made me part of the big leadership team and so the the only thing i could do you know to protest was i resigned from my leadership position and when i resigned i just wrote the dean and i said uh you know i'm resigning because i think this is a deeply flawed decision but also i'm the member of your leadership team that has expertise on human rights i've shared my expertise with you and it has been ignored uh and so i feel like i just can't uh you know be a part uh, of that team anymore. Um, so, so anyway, that's my position, but I think, you know, you know, the, the nation article had a, had, had, a, had a, a stronger, uh, uh, position and Ken, I think you've as well have, you
1: yeah. well, I mean, I, I thought, I mean, first all, I should say Michael Massing in the nation did in an incredibly thorough job of investigating this case. And so I really want to give him credit there. Um, there were, I mean, I, I agree that there's no evidence that Elmendorf has any personal animosity, any personal view. I just don't think that that's a credible explanation for what went on. Um, you know, Michael sort of suggests two possibilities, and I really only credit one of them. I mean, one of his you know, suggestions was that it's the national security influence at the Kennedy School that would have been behind this. And I don't find that credible because Human Rights Watch deals with national security types all the time, and we are, you know, completely seen as credible interlocutors. You know, I mean, just within the last year, I've, I've met personally with um, with Anthony Blinken with Jake Sullivan. You know, this is just not that unusual. And you know, Blinken actually wrote me an incredibly nice personal note when I announced my resignation. I mean, there's just no way that you know. The national security institutions have this kind of animosity that they would try to block me. So I don't find that credible. I mean, it's an interesting angle about who influences the Kennedy School in other ways, but I don't think that was the rationale here. So, so, I mean, the only credible explanation left, and I agree, Catherine, that it is just a hypothesis because we just don't know yet, is that this was, you know, donor pressure in some form. And, And until the article this morning, I wasn't even clear whether Elmendorf had consulted with donors or just presumed what they would think. Um, the comments in the Chronicle this morning suggest that he did consult with whoever these people who are important to the Kennedy School are without naming them explicitly as donors. But I just have no idea who else that would be. Um, and so, you know, that's what we're left with.
0: So we're left with that because the. Kennedy School, because the response by the uh, by Dean Elmendorf and I also guess just the Harvard you know administration more broadly has been no comment. Um, and I'm just I'm curious for both of you, whether you think that's sustainable to basically just say nothing at all.
1: Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I, I've actually been surprised at how poor the Kennedy School's public relations strategy has been I mean it's basically Elmendorf burying his head in the sand and hoping the storm blows over that is you know such an unviable approach to this mm-hmm. um I mean the, the the Boston Globe this morning or I guess last last night um, had an incredibly strong lead editorial on this mm-hmm. you know um, yesterday they had a front page article in the Boston Globe I mean this is Harvard's hometown paper you know it, it is not sustainable in the face of that kind of public pressure. To just refuse to comment which is what they're basically doing you know they're saying we don't comment on on fellowship decisions or personnel decisions when it's I mean, it's not my privacy they need to protect they just don't want to defend what they did you know so i don't think it's sustainable i do feel that um i mean and this i've i've never even personally met elmendorf i just had this one video conference with him so um but my sense of him is he seems paralyzed and that I'm, I'm not sure that he's capable at this stage of resolving this. And it probably is going to take intervention by the Harvard president. But that would be appropriate because this is Harvard's credibility that's at stake. Because you know, while we don't know for sure, the signal being sent is that major donors have enough cloud at Harvard to compromise intellectual independence. And that's just a terrible message, particularly around this fraud issue because it it suggests to you know young scholars that if you criticize israel this could be a career killing move you know this it's not it's not affecting my future but it's it's a terrible signal to send to other people who are in a much more vulnerable position
0: Right, right. And I mean, many people are probably already aware that it's uh, it's a career, uh, it
1: can be a career endangering move. Um, no. no, but I think I mean, the fact that they do this to me just underscores the whole thing. And it, and the, the amount of publicity it gets is, you know, is good as a way of pressuring Harvard, but bad if they don't reverse course, because it just, you know, magnifies this, the, the message.
0: Yes. Catherine, I'm curious about how much pressure you think there is internally coming within the Kennedy School. Is there a division, difference of opinion about this? Do you feel like a lot of? I mean, I know you've been you've been far away. You haven't been there on the ground in uh, Harvard Square. But do you do you feel like there's been a kind of mobilization and pressure from within?
2: Um, so I know there's a I know there's a faculty letter being prepared that, of course, I will join. Um, and though I think the faculty letter is focusing more on uh, the the broader problem that the signals is that we don't. We don't have a good centralized uh, uh, process for handling fellowships, right? The fellowships are being granted. uh, Decisions are being made uh, by all sorts of uh, decentralized parts of of the Kennedy School, by different people, for different reasons, with different uh, types of money. And so at one point they said, we have to centralize, we have to have a vetting. And then they centralized it into a staff kind of a a staff group that is too risk averse. So this one they got wrong, they created risk instead of being, but they're very, very risk averse, okay? And if you're gonna centralize vetting, you need to centralize it in in a committee that includes your faculty who can bring the, you know, some, um, I think, I don't know, more more kind of knowledge uh, uh, and kind of academic criteria to bear. Okay? Um so, um, so,, I'm not sure. so and the, so the, there's a student letter that I know is also being circulated, for example. Um, uh, so I, you know, I get messages of support. I, I can't tell you, I haven't had anyone write. I mean, yeah, I'm starting to get little bits and pieces of hate mail, not from the Kennedy school, but from the world. Uh, but um, but no one within the Kennedy school has written me to say that, you know, somehow, you know, to, cri- to critique. Uh, my position on this, so.
0: So I want to encourage people to put questions in the in the chat. Um, um, and uh, I, I want to, um, I guess I want to ask you, Ken, a, a slightly broader question, which is, um, how would you, you mentioned at the beginning that there are a lot of different governments that don't like Human Rights Watch. Um, um, how would you compare the political pressure That Human Rights Watch gets on its criticism of Israel towards the political pressure it gets from other countries, Um, and if there's a if there's a discrepancy, why do you think that is?
2: Well, Peter, I
1: mean, let me um, maybe modify your question a little bit because, um, you know, political pressure. There are lots of governments that fight back politically,
0: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. and so you know, they're, I mean, the Russians, the Chinese, the Saudis, the Rwandans, you know, it's, it's not that surprising to find, you know, a particular designated governmental ambassador who's particularly good on Twitter or, you know, somebody who has a way with words who, who just spites back. And so we get that pressure all the time, but I think you're really asking more about, you know, donor pressure. Sure. That's fine. Okay. Um, and i should say here you know that i mean human rights watch does not accept any governmental money so right. the governmental pressure is utterly irrelevant to us mm-hmm. um the the country that comes up as a concern among donors 90% of the time is israel mm-hmm. you know every once in a while it's another country ethiopia came up recently you know but it's mostly israel now i think that that's a product of the fact that you know there are many progressive jews who are donors mm-hmm. um but the you know, one thing that I learned quite early on, it really was during the, the war with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, um, whenever that was, you know, 2003, somewhere in that vicinity. But um, where, where Human Rights Watch had found that the Israeli government had issued warnings to people in southern Lebanon to flee, which is the right thing to do, but then had assumed that everybody who stayed was Hezbollah and bombed them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, many people stayed because they were impaired, you know, they, they were older, they didn't have money to move, you know, whatever. And and so it was, you know, we were very critical of the Israeli government. We also were critical of their use of cluster munitions. Um, now, interestingly, the reception by the Israeli government was quite respectful. I went to um, to military headquarters in Tel Aviv, um, sat down with the person at the time who was the the mag, the basically the chief legal officer of the military, um, who, who was Mandelbite, who turned out to be, you know, the, the more recent attorney general. And he had a whole team of lawyers around the table, furiously go- taking notes. It was a very serious meeting, and I, my impression was they were trying to learn lessons from our findings and avoid repetition of this. So that was the good news. The bad news is I was lambasted by kind of pro-Israel media. This was pre-Twitter, you know, so it wasn't social media, um, and it was really ugly. There was a, something called the New York Sun. Which I don't even know if it exists anymore, yeah. but it's a pretty yeah. you know yeah. right wing it, it, it still exists, yeah. All right. Well, I haven't seen it for a while, but so, but you know, after all of this bashing, what I realized is it didn't really make any difference with the donors to Human Rights Watch, because if you care foremost about protecting Israel from criticism, you don't give to Human Rights Watch because that's not what we do. You know, we we apply standards equal and you know, even handedly to everybody. Um. If you want those standards applied even-handedly, then you give to us. And even within that group, there may be people who ask questions about Israel, mm-hmm. but I don't lose significant donors. Um, I may never attract them in the first place, but I don't lose them. Mm-hmm. And and it, you know, for me, the bottom line was, I just, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna be principled. I'm gonna be as factual and objective as I can. And I'm not gonna worry about the donors because it just doesn't matter that much. And that was my experience, you know, really throughout my tenure at Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I want to um, uh, ask a uh, I've seen we're starting to get questions in the chat, which is which is great. And I want to ask one from um, uh, Professor George Basharat, uh, who, because he he very succinctly framed a question that I was trying to figure out how to ask myself. And it 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 has to do with um, um, the the attention that this uh, this has gotten compared to what a Palestinian and Palestinian-American academics and scholars go through. It reminds me a little bit, I had an incident a few years ago where I was like in a very mild way questioned for an hour or so at the Israeli airport and got into the New York Times. And it, I felt in this very odd position because I knew that you know that Palestinians were, you know, going through Ben Gurion have a much, much, much worse experience than I was getting, and it gets no attention because it's just not a, it's a, it's not a, you know, man bites dog story when it happens to Palestinians. So, so George writes. Every Palestinian scholar in the United States can attest to numer- innumerable instances of pro-Israel violence and pressure from university administrations. I could go on at length about my own experiences. Why is it that our experiences of academic repression have barely merited comment in your view? So I'll ask you, Ken, and then Catherine, you're welcome to, to, to add a perspective as well.
1: You know, I mean, this is a completely valid question. You know, and I, I mean, you could have said something similar about, you know, the apartheid report. I mean, Human Rights Watch was hardly the first human rights organization to find the Israeli government responsible for the crime of apartheid. This had there had been you know numerous findings by Palestinian groups which didn't get any attention. You know finally when Beth Salem, the Israeli group came out with that finding then it did get attention. And then when Human Rights Watch a few months later it came out with our report it got even more attention. But I, I you know these these are just you know I mean partly it is you know man bite dog but partly it's just the you know the biases that that exist within the media. And um, people are just less willing to stand up for the the rights of Palestinian scholars or activists when they confront discrimination. Mm
0: -hmm. And and, and you think that's just because, why? Because we have an internalized expectation that that they don't deserve the same fair treatment because they've been so dehumanized in the public conversation that if they get, if they give it a hard time, people think, well, maybe there's they are if there's there's really something to be worried about. Like what what is it about our public discourse that makes us so kind of inured to that? Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, I don't have a good answer to that. I, I think, you know, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is seen as just so divisive that there's almost this presumption that everybody's partisan, which is just not true. You know, um, so that may be behind it. I I can't justify it because I don't think it's right. It it is a reality, but it's not right. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Catherine, do you have have any thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, well, first I would say that it's an excellent question. I just associate myself with everything that Ken just said. But then I want to go on to say, for me, actually, and sorry, Ken, this is not mainly about Ken Roth, Okay, This is about uh, the legitimacy of human rights watch. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to make this struggle is that Human Rights Watch is you know, one of you know, a handful of premier human rights organizations in the world doing incredibly important work. And if this succeeds at all in beginning to kind of give people tools to critique the legitimacy of Human Rights Watch, it will have done a, a huge disfavor to the human rights movement globally. Um, and so I think that it's that that I think if, to think of it only being about Ken misses the bigger global picture that's going on here.
1: Yeah. No, you're yeah. totally right, Calvin. It's not just about me. I mean, it's it's about human as much. Yeah. Right, watch.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: right. Right. I think it's, you know it drives me nuts when I see these people who are basically unconditioned defenders of Israel posing as the world's greatest supporters of the rights of the Uyghurs and the Iranians and the Syrians and everyone else, because the reality is if they succeed in blowing up Human Rights Watch and blowing up the UN institutions and blowing up these institutions so they can't monitor what Israel is going to do. What do they think is going to happen to these other people, right? Once you destroy the international legal framework of human rights. So I I think it's a point that I wish people would make more. Um, um,
1: Peter, that's actually a very good point, because I mean, some of these, you know, there. I mean, there's this cottage industry of groups with neutral names whose, you know, raison d'etre is to to defend everything the Israeli government did and criticize anybody who criticizes Israel. Um, You know, in their view, in the history of the world, the Israeli government has never committed a human rights violation, you know, and most of them only stick with that. But some of them have taken on the UN. Um, You know, the other one who... um, who did this? the the former um, Trump's one of his ambassadors. Um, I'm blanking on her name right now. Um, South Carolina. Oh, Nikki Haley. Uh huh. Yes. You know, so she jumped on this bandwagon too. So let's blow up the UN Human Rights Council because it criticizes Israel too much. Right, right. And you know, and and so just completely ignoring, you know, the enormous good that the Human Rights Council does in many many dire situations around the world. All that matters was to criticize Israel too much, and and that is, you know, that is so short-sighted.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Catherine, you do not need to raise your hand. You are the <laughs> you are an important person here. But I, please go ahead.
2: Okay, okay. But I do want to take a little. So, for example, I yeah. think the Human Rights Council does incredibly important work. The United Nations does incredibly important work. But I want to state, as a matter of fact, I believe that as compared to Human Rights Watch, both the UN General Assembly. Re- resolutions and UN Human Rights Council resolutions are indeed have an anti-Israel bias, okay? And you know, I was just looking numerically this morning just because I thought this might come up about how many resolutions, General Assembly resolutions there have been against human rights violations in Israel uh, uh, or about Palestine uh, versus other countries that are equally repressive or more And uh, uh, there are more resolutions against Israel in both the UN General Assembly, Israel and and, and Palestine, put them together, right? Yes. Uh, In the UN General Assembly and in the UN Human Rights Council, and I believe that's an evidence of bias.
0: Yes, I think. I would just—I mean, I'm sure Ken has thoughts about this. I guess my initial thought would be just that I think that seems totally right to me. And then these are political bodies, right? right? These are governments, and governments have relationships with some countries, and you have particular block of, gov- of of countries in the in the Middle East, in the developing world that have that find it easier to focus on Israel than they do on other countries. But I also just think it's important to to that just because you are spending more time criticizing one government than others doesn't mean your criticism is illegitimate. I'm quite sure that if you look at South Africa right during the 1970s and 1980s, and you compared it to other African countries, you would find that South Africa also got a very disproportionate amount of criticism for political reasons, because it was easier for developing world countries to criticize apartheid South Africa than to criticize post-colonial African governments. It didn't mean their criticisms of apartheid were wrong. Um, yeah. Peter, let me do my, my just no, one
2: minute. I'm on okay. say, can I just say, I completely agree with you, Peter. And in fact, I have examples, lots of resolution against Chile, none against Argentina. Yes. More, more human rights violations at the same time. What's going on? Basically, uh, Argentina, believe it or not, had the support of the Soviet Union during the grain embargo. Remember that? And the Soviets were blocking Human Rights Commission at the time, resolutions against Argentina, where the Chile uh, in Chile basically the, the East and the West began to agree that Chile was fair game and and then so everyone could get on you know pylon.
1: Yes, yes. Ken, did you want to respond? I mean, just two quick points. I mean, one is that um I mean it's true the human rights council has many more resolutions on Israel-Palestine than anything else. Um one thing to keep in mind is that the US vetoes UN Security Council resolutions on Israel with one exception, which was at the end of the Obama administration. Yes. But the other interesting thing about the Human Rights Council, the the argument is, the, the objection is really twofold. You know, One is that there are too many resolutions. And second is that there's a special agenda item, item seven, I believe it is, focused only on Israel, Palestine, and no other country gets that. And so what we've proposed is, um, have one consolidated resolution, not a proliferation resolution, but a single resolution and introduce it under item two or four, but not seven. So just an ordinary item and then vote for that. And there has been, you know, some movement to do that but the major Western governments still vote against it or abstain, you know? So that's why um, it's not just the fault of the Human Rights Council.
0: Yes, yes, it's a good point. can I want to turn to something else? So, so, so you know, you are constantly, constantly being criticized, from you know, by people who think you're too tough on 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 Israel. And so, I wanted just so you had the opportunity to flex a, to d- a different kind of muscle or or to 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 deal with a different kind of uh, sorus aggravation. Um, to ask you a question that comes from the kind of the other side a little bit, which I've heard from certain people as well, which is essentially to say, why did it take Human Rights Watch so long? To come to, to to write a report saying that Israel was an apartheid state when Palestinians had been saying this for a very long time, and why? Uh, and 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 there have even been critics who came out of Human Rights Watch, Helena Coben, Muhammed Rabani, others who who had criticisms of Human Rights Watches in the you know work on Israel in the past from the left, as it were. But also beyond the question of why only now the the framework of a threshold crossed, as you know, some people said. A threshold crossed. I mean, Israel began with the mass expulsion of Palestinians. It held Palestinian citizens under military law until '67. Then it took the West Bank, where it held all these Palestinians without citizenship and basic rights. So, wh- when was the when was it not in this situation of basically kind of Jewish dom- legal domination and oppression of Palestinians? Not the first time I'm sure you heard this critique, but I'm curious how you how you respond to it.
1: Well, I mean, it may be useful just to explain, you know, how we came to recognize the need to write the apartheid report. And, you know, there was no question that we were documenting systematic oppression over the years. And the the facile answer, but not one you could completely dismiss, was that um, this is a temporary problem. There's a peace process. When there's peace, these problems will go away. And that had credibility for a while. We we probably lost credibility before we acted, but we recognized ultimately that this is just not an acceptable answer anymore. The peace process is moribund. um, Everything's moving against any possibility of having a Palestinian state. And so we have to assess this oppression under existing law and not just hope that it'll go away through the peace process. And so that's what we did. you know, we didn't make, I mean, deliberately, quite explicitly, did not make an historical analogy to South Africa. We simply applied the two treaties that define what apartheid is. One is called the Convention Against Apartheid. The other is the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And once you do that, um, and and the you know we the the report that Omar Shakir, the human rights Watch researcher, wrote, is a very factual, very detailed report, quite rich, um, you know, over two hundred pages it's an overwhelming case. Now, we um, we didn't purport to say, when did it start? That was not part of our inquiry. We just sort of said, it is that today. Um, but that was the, the thought process that led us to embark on this. It took two years to write the report. I mean, it's a very carefully done report, um, but it's it's a report that I very much stand behind.
0: Um, Catherine, I wanted to, to ask you about um, the question of kind of Academic academic freedom and and how much confidence you feel that that there is even among tenured faculty like yourself in being able to take really uh, you know controversial opi- you know opinions um, that you know that powerful people in your own institution um, you know uh, um, you know like donors might disagree with and I'm also curious whether you think it differs at all at the Kennedy School. Being a kind of a public policy school that is very, very engaged with government, as opposed to, you know, in a liberal arts department like the history department or the political science department or something, if you think that the the, the sense of ex, the experience for faculty is different.
2: Um so first, as a tenured faculty at the Kennedy School, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any fears about the fact that somehow I'm gonna, there's punitive action will be taken again to okay. me. Okay. So I think, and someone raised this and, you know, it's a big, big issue with tenure track faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, tenure. Yeah, no, I just by being inside the Kennedy School process, you know, it, the process is equally rigorous as any department at Harvard. And it not only goes to the Kennedy School process, it goes to what's called the Harvard called an ad hoc, right? right, which is they the provost brings together yet another group of people to evaluate. But I can tell you that tenure track faculty are extremely anxious and do believe that everything they do will be scrutinized. Uh, and you, know, you try to tell them actually, you know, it's it's pretty based on what you publish or don't publish, you know. But and so I think there definitely is and could be a chilling effect, just because whatever actually happens in tenure, that tenure faculty are anxious. That that they will be scrutinized and they will make decisions based on that. Um, and then second, I just feel like the the whole the the freedom of you know I just think about how impoverished we are in this next year. Any event at the Kennedy School where you know uh, Israel Palestine was being debated might be debated. Human rights Israel Palestine debated. You know will be set up again as this very kind of uh you know that will. Very kind of confrontational uh, event, and I I just will wish every time that we had Ken's voice there, a a voice coming from kind of the objective world of human rights, and that voice will be absent, which will impoverish those debates. Our sorry students, our students really lose out here, Um, and and so and then my you know my we've already said it. I think the situation of young. Palestinian scholars in this country when they see that it's also extremely chilling on, 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 their, on their work, on their careers, on their future, their, and their perceptions of their future, and their wishes to even engage with academia, which is uh, a tragic.
0: I'm interested, Catherine, in, in whether, you know, this has been, it's been, I guess, almost 20 years now. It's been quite a long time. But there was, when I think about the Kennedy School in Israel-Palestine, I think about Stephen Walt um, and the, yeah. fear. I don't know if you were back, if you were, were you there when that, when that I happened? I wasn't there. No, no, I wasn't okay. there. Okay. But, um, and, and I just, so I guess it's probably not the right question to ask you, but, you know, there was obviously, no. the institution did not exactly stand behind him when he wrote the, the essay that became the Israel Lobby, which was, which was very controversial. Yeah.
2: No, compl- the, Steve had, because he'd been through this himself, was my first, you know, he wrote the first letter of protest, a very okay. eloquent letter of protest to the dean,
0: mm-hmm. came from
2: Steve Walt. And so when I first, I first went out to a group of faculty telling what had happened, Steve wrote the most forceful, eloquent letter. And then lately he wrote me a note saying, welcome to my club, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so yes, this, and so what Steve experienced, again, he was tenured, he wasn't gonna lose his position, but for example, Steve was mentioned as a possibility for a future dean of the Kennedy School, and I think it's generally acknowledged that that's probably the point where he was no longer he could no longer be a, was a credible candidate
0: right, for right. being
2: dean of dean of the Kennedy School. Now, um, and uh, and he was told, for example, he's the Renee Belfer Professor. Just like I'm the Ryan Family Professor. He was yep. told that he went when he went up to talk about this book, couldn't use his own title,
1: right? Right, you know, which, which he is, ignored,
2: right? But which is absurd. Yeah. And so um, anyway, so it, it was very badly handled then. And the, you know, you'd think they would have learned a thing or two, but and now they're handling a similar situation equally poorly, but just tone deaf.
0: Yeah. Can I want to ask you a question that came in the chat was actually directed to me, but I want to ask it to you. And it's from Riham Shendi. And I thought it was a very interesting question that I had not thought of. So the point that they made was, um, we don't know who talked to, to Elmendorf, but let's, let's assume that there was Jew, one or more Jewish donors, who, pro-Israel Jewish donors, plausible. Again, we don't know, but plausible. They, they spoke to him. Then the media has to write about this, right? And the question they asked was, I can very easily imagine a situation in which someone writes that story, Elmendorf pressured by... Joe Schmo, who's who who was Jewish, and then that gets accused of playing into anti-Semitic tropes about you know malevolent Jewish power, right? Um, uh, Because actually, it is a story about the malevolent power of one Jewish person, or maybe two Jewish people, or whatever, how many? So I guess the question I'm curious, and I noticed that the ADL already, uh, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL already had what to me was like a totally I thought nonsensical tweet, basically attacking the nation for having peddled anti-Semitic stereotypes for the offense of actually reporting on what actually happened to you. So how can we have a conversation like this and be careful about, yes, there are these tropes that can be misused and can be dangerous and yet still have a conversation that actually is honest about, about the way these things play themselves out when it happens to be that there are Jewish donors who are you who are using their influence in ways that are undermining human rights and academic freedom?
1: Yeah, I mean, Peter, it, it's a difficult question. I I guess my feeling is that we we can't allow you know the very legitimate concerns with the evil of anti-Semitism to stand in the way of accurate reporting. Mm-hmm. And you know, this comes up with <laughs> the respect to criticism of Israel. I mean, if if people, you know, as there is some attempt to do to sort of charge critics of the Israeli government with being anti-Semitic, that cheapens the concept of anti-Semitism. I think that harms the broader effort. And and it it would be bad um, if anti-Semitism is devalued because suddenly people think, oh, it's not a real problem. It's just a a cover for trying to stop people from criticizing Israel. That's not what it's about. It's not what it should be about. And I, I feel somewhat similar with respect to You know, if if in fact what happened with the Kennedy School is that one or two pro-Israel donors blocked my fellowship, we can't hide from that just because some anti-Semite some anti-Semite might run with it. You know, we have to, I think, honestly report and and then say, but the answer to that is not to criticize all Jews. The answer is to criticize, you know, this abuse of the donor position. And I, so I think that's the answer. It's not through censorship. It's through being, you know, sensitive to the potential misuse, but not pulling our factual punches.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're almost out of time, but Catherine, I just wanted to ask both of you. Starting with you, Catherine, what do you think is ultimately going to happen?
2: Well, um, I like this uh, this suggestion that Ken just made that I hadn't quite envisioned that the president of the university would step in and reinstate him. Uh, that'd be that'd be. You know, that'd be Harvard, great. Has new, st-
0: Harvard has a new president, or have they not taken? Office? Not yet. In, in, in June, they're not I
2: think taken. Yeah. They're not yeah. taken. And and anyway, it should be the you know, You don't want to. This shouldn't be the current president. Yeah. You know. Uh, and so I think that would be a great outcome. Can we? Do you still come?
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Of course, I would still come. But I. I. What I want to stress is that if all that happens is that I'm reoffered the fellowship, that's not enough. Okay. Because I. I, I do think that you know. The presumptive explanation of what's going on here is that pro-Israel donors nixed my fellowship via the route of Elmendorf, the dean. And I, I think they have to come clean about what happened. If it was something else, say it. But um, the fact that they, you know, everybody's alleging this and they're saying they don't, you know, contradict any specific allegations, but they're not saying anything. It's it's a terrible situation right now. So I think they they need to come clean about what happened. And I would like to see. Um, I mean, Catherine, you were mentioning kind of a a better fellowship process. I actually think fellowships are just, you know, in a sense, you know, the visible part of the iceberg. I mean, it's not, um, I think this is about, are you going to allow donors to interfere with intellectual independence? And I would like to see Harvard come up with a clear policy on that. You know, and so it's, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to fund a study on X. I mean, that's fine but not to say we're going to fund a study on action you have to find why you know and certainly you can't hire so and so because their views are too controversial about subject matter z you know so it's uh, that's what this is bringing up and I'd like to see some real leadership. I'm, I'm not you know, holding my breath on this, but that's what would really salvage this situation. And, and it's the kind of thing that Elmendorf's not going to do. It's going to take the Harvard president to do. But my, my view is like, you know, if Harvard can't take that position and say we're not going to accept donors using their financial influence to compromise academic freedom, who can? I mean, Harvard's the wealthiest academic institution in the world. It should be able to do
2: this. Yeah. So uh, one, that I, I agree with what you just said. Let me just say, though, I think that some things are quite settled. For example, like it's I would say it's a completely subtle matter around here that donors cannot interfere with faculty appointments or a promotion. OK. And any attempt to do so, I believe, would be. Now, of course, that donors get involved because they endow chairs. So you could endow a chair, you know, uh, about something. Uh, but the whole notion is once you endow it, you are out. You could not be involved in who would get selected to be that chair. And if you try, it's condemned. It's generally seen as an abuse. Okay. I think the reason I'm focusing on fellows is because the fellow area is is seen as kind of this gray area. It's quite unregulated. It's quite decentralized. And I think that indeed is an area where there has been a much more uh, uh, um, interference from I, I believe that there are examples of interference from donors in the fellow area that they wouldn't dare do and wouldn't be permitted to do around faculty hiring or promotion. And even, even if you wish students, I mean, we know there's the legacy accepting, right? But the whole student thing is they've gotten, they've tried to get kind of squeaky clean about that too because of the problems around it. So I feel like that these fellows are this area that has not been properly examined and, and, and uh, we need a particular process there.
1: Yes, I think I okay, think maybe, maybe just do a yeah, one, last one word.
2: corollary to what you
1: say, because I mean, what, what implicit you're saying is that, you know, the problem isn't really around faculty, it's around fellows. Um, and even if that's true, that shouldn't impede the Harvard president from articulating a clear rule for everything. And to say that, you know, donors do not have the right to interfere with intellectual independence period on anything and and that would be a you know that would really make something of this episode that would be a valuable lesson to be taught i agree yeah, I, mean, I think one of the points that i think a lot of people have made which is
0: also important is that these issues there's all in a world where you have more and more adjunct professors and more and more professors who have no protections right and are very precarious economically, that is very often makes these "quote unquote" council culture episodes much easier right because the university doesn't have any obligations to them. Um, um, and so I think that's part of the larger question here. Um, so we're going to, I will just suggest that for, for what it's worth I think that Dean Elinor should be offered two options he can either uh, resign or he should have to go and spend a week in um uh seeing for himself um uh uh what what kind of bias he might uh, or opinions he about this he might acquire after watching thousands of people face expulsion from their homes but um anyway that's just my own my own opi- opinion. Um, I'm very grateful to you, Catherine and you Ken, uh for spending the hour with us and I hope that uh something can be redeemed from this really really unfortunate episode. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of MFEP's Occupied Thoughts.